Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Appreciate your coming and um, I'd like to get right down to it. Um, so the question is, was Jesus an egomaniac? And my approach is going to be to listen with you to four people who have stumbled and found serious problems with the self-exaltation of Jesus and of God in the Christian scriptures. So I'm going to listen to those people with you, put some slides up, and let them talk. I take their objections very seriously. I've been thinking about it for about 40 years and gathering um, thoughts about this. And uh, then I want to give an answer to the question, and my answer is going to be no. Jesus is not an egomaniac, <laughs> even though the evidence that we'll take about 15 minutes to look at is pretty compelling to a lot of people that he is. And, and then we'll try to uh, show why the answer no is true with a kind of syllogism at the end. So that, that's the plan to listen and then to answer and then to give a reason. So Eric Ries is uh, the writer in residence at the University of Kentucky, Lexington. In 2009, he published a book called An American Gospel. And then in May of that year, he did an interview on NPR. This is how I know about it. I was listening at the time, but with Terry Gross, Fresh Air, if you know that program. And in it, Terry Gross cited his book, page 28, um, this text. And he quoted Jesus, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So she quotes that. And then she quotes the next line in the book, which goes like this. Who is this egomaniac speaking these words? So those are the words of Eric Reese. And she asked him on the program, would you care to elaborate on that pretty provocative statement? Who is this egomaniac speaking these words? And this is what he, he said. And uh, I went with Google last night to find this. And uh, I think it's been removed. I don't think it's a Google problem, but this is gone from the NPR website, but it was there, I promise you. And I was hoping I could just say, go get it. And maybe you can find it because you all do that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what he, he answered her question. Well, it just struck me as who is this person speaking 2000 years ago, a complete historical stranger saying that we should love him who we are really incapable emotionally of loving more so than we should love our own fathers and sons. It just seemed like an incredibly egomaniacal kind of claim to make. So that's Eric Reese saying, when Jesus says, love me, you must love me more than you love anybody in the world, he's talking like an egomaniac. So I, I think what Jesus is saying is, if you don't love me more than you love anybody else, if you don't love me more than you love anybody else, then um, you will not have 
an eternity long relationship with me. And we know from other things he said that it will be catastrophic if you turn away from him in that way. <clears throat> so I think Eric Reese, if he were here, would say right on. That's exactly what I said, exactly what I meant. You haven't distorted my comment at all. He's not nit nitpicking. If you know the scriptures at all, you know that is the way Jesus talked. Not just here, but in Matthew, but all over, all over the place. He is self-exalting in the way he talks. Now, it seems to me that he's not alone in this at all. Um, there are probably more people who stumble over God's self-exalting way of talking in the Bible than Jesus's way of talking in a self-exalting way. I want to illustrate from Michael Prouse. Michael Prouse wrote in uh, 2003 in the London Financial Times this. Worship is an aspect of religion that I always found difficult to understand. Suppose we postulate an omnipotent being who, for reasons inscrutable to us, decided to... I just realized I didn't turn this on, so I probably just ruined everything. <laughs> for reasons inscrutable to us, decided to create something other than himself. Why should he expect us to worship him? We didn't ask to be created. Our lives are often troubled. We know that human tyrants puffed up with pride crave adulation and homage. But a morally perfect God would surely have no character defects. So why are all these people on their knees every Sunday? That's Michael Proust. So Eric Reese says, when Jesus commands us to love him more than we love anyone, he's acting like an egomaniac. And Michael Proust says, when God commands us to uh, offer him adulation and homage, he's acting like a tyrant uh, who has a moral defect. And of course, Michael Proust is not nitpicking either, because this is the way God talks over and over Again, in the Bible, I think probably these words from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 48, 9 to 11, are probably the most densely God-centered verses in the Bible. And the rub is that they're spoken by God. <clears throat> so you have God here telling us to make much of God. For my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. So Michael Prouse is absolutely right to say that God demands adulation, to use his word, praise, worship, homage. He does. And, of course, he's not the only person who stumbles over that. 
Oprah Winfrey, whom you all know, um, stumbled over this kind of expression when she was 27 years old. And you can go and find this at YouTube and listen, watch her tell this story that I am going to quote here. Um, she was in a church service and she was listening in a very traditional Christian setting to a message about the attributes of God, omnipotence, omnipresence. And she continues like this. Then the preacher said, then he said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. And he was quoting from the Old Testament book, Deuteronomy 5, 9. I was caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said, jealous. And something struck me. I was 27 or 28, and I was thinking, God is all. God is omnipresent. God is also jealous. A jealous God is jealous of me. And something about that didn't feel right in my spirit. Because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things. And so she turned away from traditional Christianity. And of course, she was not wrong to say, the Bible says God is a jealous God. Because in Exodus chapter, what, 34, 14, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. So the jealousy of God is not a marginal thing. It's not like a outlier of his personality traits. It's right at the center. It's his name. He is a jealous God, which means that God made you and me to know him as our highest value, worship him, treasure him, love him, enjoy him like a wife, a husband, among all, leaving all others, forsaking all others, cleaving to you alone. And you say, yes, that's why I made you, to cleave to me alone, value me, treasure me. And if you don't, I get jealous. I'm jealous for your affection. So my wife is sitting here. If she went after another man, I would be jealous. And I would say that to her. I'm jealous for your affections. They belong to me. I'm your husband. And that's the way God was talking. And it was a huge stumbling block. Let's listen to one more voice. Um, Brad Pitt, whom you also know, uh, did an interview with Parade Magazine 2007, and he explained why his boyhood faith failed him. And he grew up in the same tradition I did. He was a Southern Baptist, very conservative. And he begins like this. Religion works, he said. I know there's comfort there, a crash pad. It's something to explain the world. And tell you there is something bigger than you and it's going to be all right in the end. It, it works because it's comforting. I, I grew up believing in it and it worked for me in whatever my little personal high school crisis was. 
but it didn't last for me. And then I asked, why, why didn't it? And his answer is, I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best. And then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you don't get it. That is, you don't get this happiness. It seemed to me to be about ego. I can't see God operating from ego. So it made no sense to me. That's tragic. And, and I'm here to help it make sense. I would like in the next 15 minutes for it to at least be plausible that a good, holy, loving, kind, gracious, merciful God would be self-exalting. So that's the four, those are the four voices that I wanted us to hear. Here's the heart of the matter. There is no doubt that uh, God, in fact, does speak this way, act this way. You do have to acknowledge me, God says. I am the best, and you need to acknowledge that I am the best, and I will give you eternal happiness if you see in me your highest treasure. That's the way Jesus talked. Here's the way Jesus put it. <clears throat> Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father, God, who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father, who is in heaven. So God, Jesus, the manifestation of God, talks that way. And the question is, is he therefore an egomaniac? That's the question. Now, um, my answer is no. I, I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. I count Jesus the highest authority, the highest treasure, the highest pleasure, the King, the Lord in my life. And therefore, I am here to argue on his behalf. And so, no, I don't think he's an egomaniac, but I don't expect you to take my word for it. And therefore, I want to develop an argument. And it's a syllogism, and I presume that everybody that works at Google knows what a syllogism is, that, that you took a logic class in the university, and uh, there's a few people laughing, so maybe you don't. Um, all men are mortal. Plato was a man. Therefore, Plato is mortal. That's a syllogism. Two premises, and if they are true, then the conclusion will be true. If they are false, the premise, the conclusion might be valid, but it's not going to be true. And I'm going to try to develop a syllogism that is both valid, it follows from its premises, and true because the premises are true. Okay, so that's how I'm going to do this. I have two premises, and I'll try to explain them. And, and what I would love for you to do with me for these next 10, 15 minutes is to just get inside my head, all right? Just try to understand. You, you, can, you can form the truth issue later. Like, okay, he was wrong. He was wrong. Piper was wrong. But I, I would rather that 
judgment not be based on a misunderstanding. So work with me to at least understand the premises. And I think if you buy the premises, you, you'll buy the conclusion. So that's the biggest challenge we have. So premise number one is a, an effort to define an aspect of love that um, if you don't have this, you may do all kinds of kind things for people, which are a kind of love, but you won't love them fully, truly, deeply, authentically, the way Jesus calls you to love. So here's, here's that premise. Love desires and works and is willing to suffer to enthrall the beloved Whoever you're loving, might be your enemy, might be your wife, might be your child, to enthrall the beloved with the fullest and longest happiness. Premise one. That's what love is. Love is more, but I'm saying if this is missing, if the desire, the working, and the willingness to suffer, to enthrall the beloved with what would make them fully and lastingly happy, you love them. Not the way you should and not the way Jesus calls you to. So I need to clarify a bunch of things in that premise. Um, why do I say love desires and works and is willing to suffer? Because if you only work to make someone happy and you don't feel anything for that person, you don't care for them at all, you're doing this work for some other thing. I don't think you love them. And if you have all kinds of good feelings about them and you don't do anything practically to help them, to move them towards what would make them lastingly happy, I don't think you love them. And if those, if those desires and those works aren't of the kind of nature that it would actually bring you to the point where you'd be willing to suffer to bring them to their fullest and longest happiness, then I don't think you love them. So that's why I've got the word desire there as essential, working as essential, and willingness to suffer. That's all of what I think love includes as it aims to enthrall them. Why do I use the word enthrall? Hardly anybody uses the word enthrall. I use the word enthrall because I'm groping for uh, an experience. If you love somebody, I'm arguing for this premise that if you love somebody, your aim is to help them into an experience that someday, sooner or later, the beloved will be caught up into, they'll be caught up into this experience that is so soul pervading and body pervading. So all that is non-material about you and all that is material about you, will be so pervading of those things that part, that nothing in that experience will be lacking there will be a kind of self-forgetfulness that is the mark of all true ecstasy. So that's what I'm getting at in the word enthrall. I, I, want, I want to be the means right now in this room for those of you here and those of you watching. I want to be the means of that happening to you. That you become enthralled with what will 
bring you the fullest and longest happiness. Why do I say fullest and longest happiness? <clears throat> I mean happiness, joy, satisfaction, contentment, pleasure, gladness, delight. The word is not the essence here. The experience is the essence. I don't want to quibble about what word you choose to define the good, the good life. Everybody knows what it means to be horribly sad, horribly depressed, horribly miserable, and everybody knows what it means to be really happy, really glad, really satisfied, really content, really joyful. We grope for these words because we know the experiences. And I'm after your best experience, your fullest and longest. And when I say fullest, I mean so full it can't be fuller. And when I say longest, I mean so long, it can't be longer. Which means I'm after your love is after your complete and eternal happiness. Anything less falls short of love. That's that's my premise. Premise one, namely love desires and works, and is willing to suffer to enthrall the beloved in the fullest and the longest happiness, whatever that is, however it comes. You know, I've, I've said in lots of places, this is not in my notes, but I'll throw it out, um, that if you, if anybody at, at Google could come to me and offer me a happiness that is Bigger, fuller, more complete, and longer than what I have in Jesus, I would stop being a Christian. Which, which doesn't in any way threaten me because it's inconceivable. There isn't anything fuller than full. And there isn't anything longer than eternal. You don't have anything better to offer. You don't. Doesn't matter who you work for or how rich you are or whatever, you don't have anything that compares to fullest and forever joy. So there's the premise. I mean, you you can say it's not true, but the premise, leaving out who and what satisfies, is this is what love does. This is where love aims and is taking us. So that's premise number one. Premise number two. Being eternally enthralled with Jesus as the decisive revelation of God is the fullest and longest happiness in the universe. Being enthralled eternally with Jesus, nobody else, just Jesus, is the fullest and longest happiness in the universe. And the reason this is so is because Jesus is the wisest, smartest. He makes everybody at Google look like a dummy. <laughs> Seriously. He, he created the universe. He knows how everything in the universe works down to the infinitesimal and to the macro. So all of us, <laughs> we're in grade school. I mean, kindergarten. Lower. He is the wisest, smartest, strongest, deepest, most creative, most loving, most just, 
most admirable, most valuable person in the universe because he is the very essence of God. That's why being eternally enthralled with Jesus as that decisive revelation is the fullest and longest happiness. Those are my two premises. Now here's my conclusion. Therefore, when Jesus tells us that we must love him, treasure him, be satisfied in him above all others, he is loving us. He is desire, which, which is the opposite of being an egomaniac. I wish I'd typed that in here and I forgot. Let me read it again. Therefore, when Jesus tells us, use the text that Eric Reese stumbled over, when he tells us that we must love him, treasure him, be satisfied in him above all others, in doing so, he is loving us, which is the opposite of egomania. Egomania is not loving, it's not pursuing the good of the loved one. He is desiring and working and willing to suffer to enthrall us with the fullest and longest happiness, namely himself. So here's the end of the matter. God and Jesus as his perfect image is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is not a, an act of needy ego, but an act of infinite giving. Let me say that again. God and Jesus as his perfect image is the one being in the universe. I may not copy him in this. The one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is not the act of a needy ego, but an act of infinite giving. The reason God seeks our supreme praise or that Jesus seeks our supreme love is not because he's needy and won't be fully God until he gets it, but because we're needy and won't be fully happy until we give it. Seeing and being satisfied in and celebrating God in Jesus is what we were made for. Every employee at Google was made by God to see, be satisfied by, and celebrate God in Jesus. That's what we were made for. When God seeks this from us, when Jesus commands it from us, He's pursuing our greatest joy. So that's not arrogance, that's grace. And that is not egomania, it's love. And to close, um, the very heart of the Christian gospel is that Jesus died precisely to achieve this. Namely, our full and everlasting enjoyment of God. I love these two 
passages, and I'll end with, with these. These are one from the New Testament and one from the Old Testament. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So why did he suffer? He suffered to bring me, who has no right to come because of my rebellion and sin, to bring me to God. And what do I find when I come? Psalm 1611, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So I didn't make that up. That's in the Bible. And it's the claim of God that when we come to him through Jesus, our joy can't get any fuller. And our joy can't get any longer because it's full and complete and it is forever. So my answer is no. Jesus is not an egomaniac in calling us to treasure himself above everything and in suffering to make it possible. He is offering us full and forever joy. That's the argument. And that's the end of my talk at Google. <laughs> and my understanding is that uh, you may ask questions, which I would be very, very happy to hear. Yeah, we, uh, we looked. I think there's only four Dory questions. So what we're going to be doing that Cheryl and Barbara here will have, uh, Mike. So. We'll take the next like 25 minutes where we break and give you a chance to meet John. But feel free to come ask questions either about Desiring God or any of the content here today. So, and does anyone want to lead us off? Hi, I'm Pastor John. Uh, my name is Travis Cobb. I just have to say you're a hero of mine and it's a treat of the week to be able to see you speak here in person. Um, my question might be a little unusual, but I think it's keeping in the theme of your talk here, which is kind of a hypothetical question to you, which is this. Suppose you were offered a job at a company, and it's a very well-paying job, but as a condition of employment, you're asked to sign an agreement, which to your understanding means that you're obliged to uh, do whatever the company asks you to do for the rest of your life. Would you sign that agreement? Why or why not? I would if Jesus were the CEO. <laughs> and wouldn't under any other circumstances. And the reason is because it's an open-ended commitment that you would be a fool to make because the company might ask you to sin and you don't ever sin because you have a higher king. Your, your loyalty, everybody's loyalty should be higher than Google. Even the founders should be higher than, than Google. So anybody that would make a, or any other company, would make a commitment to do whatever a company. I, I think the same is true with an army. I mean, you, you sign up to, to fight for a general, or you sign up to be a citizen of a country. All these allegiances are, are, are post potentially holy allegiances, good allegiances. Uh, when you sign on for marriage, a wife and a husband, even if you use the word obey in your wedding vows, which I think would be okay to use, she doesn't mean anything you say. 
because she has a higher, a higher Lord. I, I'm not Noel's Lord, Lord. I'm just a little teeny, teeny Lord. And the way, way we work that out doesn't look very lordly usually. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think it's, it's obvious that you would put your soul at risk if you made yourself the slave of anybody but God. Hey, I have a question. Um, so my question is, was it possible for God to have created a world where the longest and fullest joy possible is not in worshiping him? If there was such a universe that could be created, it still seems egomaniac for him to create this one. So is it possible to, for him to have created that world where we're not bound to this? Okay, the word possible is tricky um, because it, it, I, I can sense a trap being laid. Um, and and, and uh, that's fine. I, um, the answer is uh, no, it's not possible because it's not possible for God not to be God. It's not possible for God not, here'd be a bit, maybe a better way to say it, even more illuminating. It is not possible for God to value anything higher than what is supremely valuable. Get that? It is not possible for God to value anything higher than what is supremely valuable. He'd be a liar if he did. And he's not a liar. He's truth. He's very essence of truth. Therefore, no, it is not possible in the nature of the case, in the nature of who he is as a God of truth and as a God who is the supreme value in the universe. You know, that is the issue behind all of this talk is what's the supreme value in the universe? And if it's me, then, of course, I'm going to reject everything I said. And if it's God, then what I said might might come in itself. So I, I don't think that possible universe is possible. All right. Thank you. We have another question here. Back here. Hi. Um, you shared with us a passage of the um, Old Testament and New Testament at the end of the presentation. And I wanted to ask you if there was a passage from the gospel that you would like to share with us today, what would it be? The gospels or the gospel? Luke or um, Mark. Right. Well, that the first quote came from Matthew about love Jesus, but, but I, I'd love to... Throw, throw out some others. I was thinking last night, should I take more time than I did to display the supreme value of Jesus or to display the um, way he exalts himself? And he says off the wall, off the charts, things about himself. Like I even wrote a poem about this years ago, like he was walking down the road one day and they were saying to him, something about Abraham, and he turns over his shoulder, doesn't say his shoulder, but he says, before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> I mean, C.S. Lewis said, that's not, that's not just egomaniacal, that's on a par with the lunatic saying, I'm a poached egg. <laughs> Jesus talked in such a way that as Lewis says, you either have to say to him, he is a lunatic, he is a liar, or he is the Lord of the universe. And so there are many such gospel quotes, which is where all but maybe two of the sayings of Jesus come from is Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke, and John. John is the 
if he didn't make these claims about himself, it would have been possible that the disciples could have, in fact, exalted him inappropriately. And, in fact, he had to make those claims about himself as well. Otherwise, I thought about it like that, but I think that's true. I mean, if he were not who he says he was, uh, they might have come up with a fabricated Jesus, but I doubt it because... I mean, if you went that if you went that direction, then you might say, well, these four Gospels are not faithful to what Jesus said. They are creations of the early church. You don't usually create things that get you killed. These 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 early Christians were being killed regularly because they were saying the kinds of things that I've just said here and therefore to argue that they are creating the manufacturing they're manufacturing a religion that for the first 300 years of its existence costs you your life almost is highly unlikely and we actually have a question for the dory uh, i believe this is from our overflow room on the other side of campus but this is from kelly um, she asks what advice do you have for believers who are trying to share their uh, faith in today's secular work environment Jesus is called to give our lives away and speak out boldly for his glory. However, I struggle reconcil reconciling this with being wise towards outsiders, uh, i.e. Colossians 4-5. Thoughts? I, I don't think being wise toward an outsider means you fail to give them the very thing they need most. If wisdom for you means avoiding criticism, Avoiding being laughed at, avoiding being put in a category with a Donald Trump, <clears throat> who in mysterious ways calls himself a Christian. Um, if, if that, if, really, if you if you worry about taking positions that will type you with a group of people that people hate, then wisdom will keep you from telling the truth. It will keep you from bearing witness. But that's not what wisdom is. Wisdom loves people. Wisdom yields to God. Wisdom takes the risks of being thought a lunatic uh, for, for Christ's sake. But she, she knows that. Or I forget, was it she or he? But um, they know that, that that's the case. What I want to say is probably there are people around you who, for all of their seeming self-sufficiency, are deep down hungry for something bigger than Google, bigger than Apple, bigger than writing books or being a preacher, whatever big is to you, deep down, late at night, they lie there thinking, I don't, this just can't be all there is to this universe and this life. So I think boldness would flow from Throw your seed, just throw your seed, and there's going to be people who are ready to talk to you probably about what you've said. Um, I have a question. Um, thank you for, for, the, for the talk. It's really um, inspiring to see another perspective. Um, so my question is about helping others. So when we help others, we usually get also pleasure. Uh, we feel good about it. So is it wrong? Um, does it mean that we're not loving? Is it, does it mean that we are self um, or uh, egomaniac? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a super, super question. I love it. I, I think about it all the time. <laughs> 
because because my whole life is devoted to enticing people to be Christians for personal gain. And I don't mean <laughs> and I and I don't mean money. I mean death and eternal life. Exactly, I'm not a prosperity preacher. I abominate the prosperity gospel. But I do tell people it is more blessed to give than to receive. Guess who said that? Jesus. Acts 20, 35. So, yes, when you say that to somebody, you're enticing them to be generous to another person because they are so enriched and helped by it. And and Jesus says, follow me and you'll have life. He's appealing to our desire for, for life. Now, your question is, well, isn't that then selfish? Because I'm helping you because I get benefit and, and you might feel used, right? That's a really, really important ethical question. And I remember when I was working in Germany, 1971 to 74, on this whole issue for three years as a graduate student on the ethical motives of love. I read dozens of articles that said, if you do anything out of reward, desire for reward, you ruin the moral value of the act. And I, I, I read those articles and say, but Jesus said, Jesus said that if you love others, you will get blessings. So how can you not know that, be aware of it, be motivated by it? So here's my answer. No, it is not selfish, provided that your goal in doing them good, that enthralling is to draw them into the very reward that you hope to get. If you hope to get reward while they miss the reward, you're selfish. You're unloving. But if you say, if, if I go to visit the hospital and I'm a pastor, so I think of this, people dying. I'm going to visit them in the hospital. And sometimes I don't want to go. It's late at night. I'm tired. I want to play with my kids. And I think Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Okay. I'll go because I'm going to get blessed. Well, do I love her or don't I? Do, I? do I love Mabel who's dying of a heart attack or do I just love me? And I walk in and I put, I put my hand on her arm and she opens her eyes like all these older saints do. They say, oh, pastor, you shouldn't have come. That's what they say. Young people say it's about time. You can't. <laughs> and, and she says, oh, why did you come? Is it? And God fills me at that moment. He says, Mabel, it really makes me glad to come and help you get ready to meet Jesus. Now, not in a million years would she say to me, makes you glad. <laughs> I thought you were supposed to care about me because she knows that I'm getting gladness in bringing her into that enthralling greatest reward. So it really does matter whether we're motivated that our blessing include them in the blessing. That's my answer. One over here. Um, hi, my name is Patrick. Um, I have a question. I'm not sure if this uh, was part of your argument, but um, the question of like eternal separation. So if God wants us, I see why like this a lot of people struggle with this and I'm a believer, but I struggle with it too. Um, God wants us to love him and like we find full joy in this and loving him. But why, 
does he separate us if we don't choose to do this? Right. Is that part of your argument or is that a whole other argument? I address that issue. It, 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 it wasn't part of the argument, okay. but, but, but it's a natural question to ask. Absolutely necessary question to ask as to, uh, basically it's the question of, if you define love this way, then does God love everybody the same? And my answer is no, he doesn't. Because if he did, everybody would experience that enthrallment. This is huge and involves the whole issue of responsibility and free will and so on. And uh, there are n numerous mysteries that I live with. And I'll try to state this one because I don't have probably an answer that will be fully satisfying to everybody. But I believe that God um, is able in his sovereignty to transform anybody's heart without turning them into a robot. Because he did mine and I don't, I'm not a robot. He, he, tra he opened my eyes, caused me to see his beauty, drew me to himself and I give him all the, all the praise for that. I don't take any credit for the fact that I saw Jesus as supremely valuable. And if he can do that, then the question is, why doesn't he do it for everybody? And I'm not sure what the best answer is for that. The, the, the answer that's usually given in, in Sunday school class is free will. He can't. He can't do that for you because you get free will and you've stiff-armed him and there's nothing he can do about it. And, and I, 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 that gets him off the hook of one hook and gets him impaled on another hook that I don't think is the biblical one. I, I want to go with the biblical hook. And I think God is on the sovereignty hook. He's not on the helpless hook over here. Um, let me throw out, this is risky, since I don't know the ultimate answer, but I'll, 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 I've got a text in my mind, namely Romans 9, 20 to 23, where it does talk about God uh, exercising his wrath and exercising his power in order to display it for the vessels of glory. So God passes over some people who have rebelled against him and do not deserve his redeeming, regenerating grace. And he passes over them in order to show the world, what a horrific thing it is to stiff arm God, to reject God like that. But I think ultimately, I'm probably going to plead at some point in that sequence of arguments, I don't know. And I, I just think there's, there are places in the, you know, the hidden, it says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the hidden things belong to God. And the things that are revealed are for you and your children. And um, God has not answered all of our questions. But one, one last comment on that, and this is the bottom line. If you, if you go home and lose sleep over this one tonight, here's what I want you to say to yourself as you're trying to go to sleep. He sent Christ, his son, into the world to suffer in order to make crystal clear his heart toward anyone who would believe. In other words, he didn't stand aloof and say, I'm just trying to show my glory out here. And if you don't uh, 
see it and tough for you. He came, he, he pursued, and he pursued in himself. And Christ, who was God incarnate, suffered and died in order to show the heart of God towards anyone who would believe. And that, that's where I think we rest. We go there and we say, okay, there are a lot of beings I don't understand about the sovereignty of God, but he did display in an amazing way his um, love in Jesus Christ's suffering. Yeah, I think so. We're going to probably do one more Dory question and one more from the live audience. But I will just start with a Dory question. And then if you have that burning question, just get to it so that John can entertain his guests and uh, give you all a little bit more about Desiring God. But uh, Chris from our San Francisco office asked if uh, you're familiar with J.K. Smith's work. He discusses how everyday things like shopping, the Pledge of Allegiance or Christian, uh, college can form us towards our love, like consumerism, nationalism, or even intellectualism. Uh, does this align with how you view loving God? Um, I am familiar with with Dr. Smith. Um, I'm not sure I'm familiar with that particular a point. Say that again. The, the practical things shape our. As a, um, asking how things like consumerism, nationalism, actualism, how those can oppose a love of God. And um, and is that, you know, what you view of loving God? Should we put those as secondary or should those be okay. primary things? That's easy. Yes. Yes, they do shape and contend with the true love. Um, I don't know if this is where the question is going, but let me tackle it for just for just a minute. Once you, you, once you believe what I believe, namely that we must delight in, treasure, value, enjoy God above all things, immediately country, wife, and pizza <laughs> or anything else that you really enjoy is properly enjoyed without becoming idolatry. That's what I hear. And I've spent a lot of my life thinking, okay, I must love you above, above Google. I must love you above my computer, above my, above my books, above my family, above my children, above my church. I must love you above my life. Yes, you must. Well, then how am I to love these things? How am I to enjoy these things? How am I to walk through life and not just be an utter ascetic who just says no, 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 no to, to, to an iPhone and to uh, a, a vacation in Lake Tahoe where my wife and I just came from with some generous, wonderful person letting us use their place. I mean, can I enjoy these things? And I'll just give you one quote from St. Augustine. That has helped me so much. He said this. He's praying now to God. He says, he loves thee too little. Who loves anything together with thee. Which he loves not for thy sake. That's really good. <laughs> That's really helpful. Let me say it again. Father God. Anybody loves you too little who loves anything together with you, family, food, vacations, computers, employment, loves anything together with you, which they love not for your sake. And I'll just give you a, a two-sentence definition of what I think he means by for your sake. 
I think he means, number one, I love these things, but I love them less than you. Number two, I love these things because in and through them, I taste you. Can you say that about your greatest pleasures? Sex, God made sex. And in marriage, he means for his love to be tasted in sex. God made food. He means for us in our eating to taste him. So it's a, he, he must be better than these things so that we're willing to die and lose them. And in them, he's the very essence and heart of what we are enjoying. We'll do one last yes, question. He's been very patient. <laughs> I can see you and nobody else can see. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you mentioned earlier that if anyone were to offer you something that would promise fuller and more lasting joy than Christ, you would give up Christianity. Um, the response that I've gotten to that similar statement is, have you tried anything else? How do you respond to that? Um, to me, two, two kinds of answers. One, um, life is too long and too precious to be experimenting with eternity. I don't know how to experiment with what will give me eternal joy. I mean, how do you do that in one day? I got a day. I could experiment with things that might make me happier for 24 hours, but not forever. So that's my first response. I, I wouldn't know how to go about the experiment. Number two, I kind of have tried it. I remember walking to church numerous times, and I'd be, there's this huge tree between the Twin Towers. It's about a seven-minute walk, and I watched this tree for 30 years. It's, it's, it's a big around, so what would it be? Three, 400 years old. And, and I would look at that tree, and I would... It's really risky. Don't try this. I would try not to believe in God as the maker of that tree. Just, just to see what it would feel like. Like, what would it be like to believe in naturalistic evolution? Like, this tree was not designed by God. It was not designed by anybody. I, I've tried. And whether God or my wimpy experiment... <laughs> I've, I've never been able to go over the edge. I, I mean, I praise God that he never let me go over the edge of unbelief. But frankly, I couldn't ever see it. I, I've, I've tried to look around and try to imagine a God-less universe. And for all the so-called new atheists talk, I can't. I mean, it looks ludicrous to me to imagine that Google... And all the brains that are involved in it was time, matter, and energy, and nothing more. I just have not, I've, I've tried to go there, kind of, and I just can't get down that road. 